aliens and flying saucers. Hey, what's up? Happy New Year. Welcome to the 31st episode of Two Riders Sling and Yang. My name is Jeff Perlman. I'm a former Sports Illustrated senior writer, former ESPN columnist, author of multiple New York Times bestsellers, and a columnist for The Athletic. The music you're listening to is Croissant's Master by the great MC White Owl. And this podcast is an ode to writing in all its forms, from journalism to songwriting to screenwriting to novels to romance to comics to whatever genre I'm thinking of. And today's guest is Tyler Kepner, the longtime New York Times baseball writer and a guy I've known for many, many moons. Tyler and I broke into the business right around the same period, and I followed his career from California to Seattle to the New York Times. And today, we're going to talk about baseball reporting, about finding angles other people miss. Also delve into Tyler's longtime antagonism toward Alex Rodriguez, as well as his odd love of Manny Trio. So let's play ball right now. On two writers, Sling and Yang. Tyler. Yes. Thank you for joining me. You're welcome. So wait, true or false, you are, as we speak, in your own book writing hell bunker. Um, it's not really hell, but uh, it's, it's, it's kind of nice, actually, because I've been looking forward all year to... Um, having some time just me up in this uh, place in New Hampshire um, that's in our family and, um, you know, just kind of concentrating on nothing but uh, the book, which, so it's, 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 uh, it's nice. It's, it's harder when you're, you know, distracted and going in a million different directions. So are you able, this is the first book you've written. It's about, it's an exploration in the history of pitching. You're writing for Doubleday. I presume it's due relatively soon. Is it, how, how much time do you have left? Uh, just to, you know, up until spring training starts, really. Um, and the whole manuscript in March 1st. and But that'll be in the middle of spring training. So I'm going to do it, you know, a month before then, probably. So are you able to sit down? You're by yourself. Are you able to sit down, not go on Twitter, not go on Facebook, not go on anything, and just write for five, six hours? Do you have these sort of discipline I lack? <laughs> well, no, you're the, uh, <clears throat> you're the master. You can teach us all how to do it. Um, but I think everybody just has a has their own process, I guess. I mean, I, you know, no, I mean, I'll have the other apps up and stuff or the other websites up just, you know, for a little bit of a distraction, but not, I mean, I, you know, I'm just, I'm learning. Like I can't, I've been trained to, uh, to write, you know, thousand word, 900, 1200 word, uh, articles. So once I, you know, once I kind of reach that, um, you know, I'll just need to do, just do something to, uh, break it up, but and I can come right back to it. Um, I'm trying to just to, you know, if I'm up here five days, then I try to do, you know, like 2,000 words a day, let's say, and then uh, that's 10, so that's a chapter, and then maybe at night, you know, try to go revise some of the other old, older chapters I've done and, and um, get them right, so I'm finding, uh, finding the groove. Yeah, early on in my, uh, when I first, when I was working on my first book, I got some really good advice from John Wertheim. Uh, at SI because he had just written a book about the Williams sister. Um, he just said, if you think of it as a hundred thousand words, it's going to overwhelm you and probably depress you. But if you think of every chapter as a long magazine article, uh, mentally it changes it. And I, I always, I still think of that for myself. That every chapter is just a long magazine piece. Mm -hmm. um, it just makes it easier for me, at least. I don't know. 
Um, yeah, that definitely wait, so makes I'm, sense. I mean, I, 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 I kind of feel that way too. So I'm staring, uh, I'm sitting here actually, this is weird, but I'm sitting in a car in a parking lot at a coffee shop in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Long yeah, I'm sorry. I really, I thought you'd be in California. Though, but, uh, no, I'm in Florida. Yeah. And um, I'm looking at an article, November 14th, 1989. Uh, magazine has youth on its side. Sure, I, I like that. Cool. Yeah, that was good. That was fun. Yeah, so uh, the lead is like any 14-year-old pitcher outfielder with a high batting average, a low earned run average, uh, and two most valuable player awards. Tyler Kepner loved to play in the big leagues. Good as he is, however, Kepner, a freshman at Germantown Academy in Fort Washington, uh, Pennsylvania, knows he is not major league material. Fortunately, he has a fallback ambition. I like to be a sports writer, he said the other day, modestly overlooking the fact that he already is one of the best. Uh, Kepner is a founder, president, publisher, editor, writer, and just about everything else of KP Baseball Monthly, the country's fastest-growing, most imaginatively written baseball magazine with a, with a hand-colored cover. So when you were a kid, you used to make this 24-page uh, baseball magazine by, on your own um, with the dream of ultimately becoming a baseball writer. Um, and here we are. And when I was a kid, my dream was to become a sports writer, just like you. And I wrote for my uh, high school newspaper, and I used to tell my mom I'm going to write for Sports Illustrated and blah, blah, blah. And she always would say, be realistic. And I'd say, oh, I really I really think I'm going to do this. And I always wonder when I talk to people like you. So here you are now. Uh, it's 2017. You're almost 30 years removed from that article. Has it been worth it? Has it lived up? what you thought it would be uh, oh yeah definitely um no question about it um you know i got an early preview for what it would be just shortly after that uh, really the next year when i started interviewing players and, and going to the you know clubhouse and, and and getting credentials and everything and and um so really right after that <clears throat> is when i just knew that I would be comfortable in that environment and um, that I, or as, as comfortable as you can be in, in that environment and um, that it was, it was for me. So I know it has, it continues to uh, I think challenge me creatively and I never get tired of baseball. You and I have discussed that. So um, yeah, I don't get it. Yeah, I actually that's, that's don't get it. I've never, I, if, if, I, if, I, if I didn't like, I've always said, you know, people in baseball, man, if you don't really love the sport and love what you're doing, man, don't do it. Cause it's just, it's so, all consuming uh, because it's every day um so it's not worth doing but i you know if, if i didn't love it i wouldn't i wouldn't uh if i didn't love it i'd probably hate it but i i don't think there's much in between um but i i love baseball so it's a uh, perfect perfect thing for me to do wait i want to go back how did you actually i'm sure we talked about this years and years ago but you you're 14 or whatever you are and you start this magazine how did you actually go from starting a local magazine to getting credentialed for uh, clubhouses as a kid um well, I uh, let me try to think exactly. Um, I mean, I, you know, I, I, I developed it to where it, it got some publicity, so it, it had a little bit of uh, credibility that way, and that other people were writing about it and and, and um, taking notice of it. Um, but as far as taking the next step to start doing interviews, I, I was I was lucky. I knew some people with the uh, with the Phillies um, who put some faith in me that I could handle myself, um, in, in that kind of situation. And, uh, and they started off, they started me off really, um, you know, with kind of baby steps. Like, like, um, I did my first interview in spring training, um, you know, on, on, on the backfield there in Clearwater, 
um, just a one-on-one with a pitcher named Pat Combs. And, oh, yeah. Um, what year was this? That was 90. It was the day after I turned 15. Okay. <laughs> what do you remember about that? You and Pat Combs, 1990. What's that? What do you remember about your first uh, interview with the legendary Pat Combs? <laughs> he was he was um, the hot thing back then, man. He was, I think he had gone uh, through every level of the farm system the year before, and he was like, you know, he had a great September, and and um, it was a first round pick, and and he was uh, he was really nice. Um, he was really, and I you know I still correspond with him now and then, but he's um, he was just super nice and down to earth and a young guy, um, and. Later that year, when I was on the field at the vet, um, I had a credential. They were uh, the network was doing a segment on me, and they credentialed me um, to go around with him. And uh, he kind of tugged on my shirt um, from the dugout, and he remembered me, um, which I thought was really cool. And yeah. I don't know. I just think people. Um, I have found this probably since the beginning that people, especially in baseball, they can sense if you're sincere or or if you're insincere and if you think you know it all um or if you genuinely want to know what they know and 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 know more um you know if, if you're i and i i think people have i mean i hope people have always sort of um sensed that sincerity about me um and i think he did um because i could have been i don't know i could have been really intimidated or whatever but um I always tried to prepare a lot beforehand. I felt like, I still feel like preparing a lot um, makes me, you know, takes away some of the nerves um, when I'm doing an interview. And also as I went along interviewing guys, I just found out that um, it was weird. It was like, they looked just like they look on TV. There was nothing really surprising about the situation, about how they looked or how they, um, how you interacted with them. As long as you just showed the proper respect, you know, nobody, doing what kind of publication I, I, I was working for. So I would bring one along and show them and explain what I wanted and, and, you know, ask politely. And, uh, you'd be surprised. And I mean, not you, but I mean, a lot of people would be surprised, um, how just being polite and, and respectful, um, how much that can help. I, I don't know. We don't have enough of that now, but yeah, I just always try to be really respectful and polite and err on that side, um, of, of the coin. Did you feel that having that experience and, and sort of doing it when you were young, like I feel like when I started covering baseball, it took me several years, just being honest, to get completely past the nerves of walking up to certain players in a clubhouse and not knowing if hostility was coming. Uh, and I wonder, I, you know, I, I've seen you in action many times through the years and, and you never really seem to have that. Or am I just totally misreading the situation? No, I, I just, I think, um, when I first went into it, I expected everybody to be a jerk um, just because I think that's the way that um, the media, unfortunately, is portrayed um, in, you know, in the media, in, in the movies and stuff. It's always portrayed as uh, adversarial and that they hate us and we hate them or whatever. And it's so not the case um, in my experience. It, it's, it's, it's much, at least in baseball, it's much more collegial than, than it is uh, – adversarial or nasty but you know when I was 15 I just expected a lot of guys to be kind of um, rude and so I had really low expectations and then they were just the opposite um, for the most part and look I wasn't asking them tough questions right I mean I wasn't like if I'm writing my own magazine I'm making my own rules and I'm my own boss so generally if I'm going to do a story on you it's going to be pretty positive um, 
you know, because those are the better players. But uh, yeah, there were still some negative things I had to ask some time, but I, I don't know. It, it, it worked out. I mean, it, um, you know, it was just, it was just a gradual process. I, I went from doing that first interview with Pat Holmes to doing some on field, um, you know, having just like field passes and then eventually clubhouse passes. And I give, I give the Phillies, you know, a lot of credit for that. Larry Shank was the uh, PR man there at the time. Dave Montgomery knew my dad. Uh, they had been in the army reserves together um, growing up. So I, you know, he think, I think he, you know, he told Larry just to, to give me a shot and see, and, and, and Larry uh, gave me a shot. And, and I think I just kept sort of proving myself that I could ha handle that sort of grown up environment. And if I hadn't, um, you know, I don't think they would have invited or allowed me to come back. Um, but I think it was just a matter of, you know, having somebody help me get in the door and then just showing people that I could, I knew how to handle myself. Right. You, you seem like a guy who does not and has never cared about being um, famous. Like you don't seem, I've never, you've never struck me as a writer who's particularly interested in his curating or getting recognized by so-and-so or having extensive time on TV um, and I wonder, is that, is that, am I misreading that or do you just not care? It's because it just seems like it's about the baseball to you more than anything. Yeah, it, it always has been. I mean, I'd be lying if I said I got into it, um, cause I wanted to be the next, uh, you know, Woodward and Bernstein or whatever. I mean, I love that movie. Um, <laughs> you know, it's one of my favorite movies, but, um, it's more, again, you and I have had this conversation. It's more like the kid in Almost Famous who he, he like, he loves writing, but he really loves music and that's right. his that's what he can do in the music scene. He can't never see him playing an instrument or even trying to, but he just, he wants to be a part of that world and he finds his niche within it. And I think I just always wanted to be a part of that world. And I tried, you know, I played, I was okay in high school and, and, uh, and uh, you know, I actually worked for the Phillies one summer. Um, I was an intern in their public relations office. The one summer in college where I didn't get a internship uh, for a newspaper and uh and i think i could have you know been an asset they would like me to come back um but it was it was just that wasn't my sort of calling or, or my greatest strength and i felt like what i could contribute to to baseball is the ability to to report on it and write on it and um and tell the stories within it so that's why i wanted to be in it but it's funny like since you asked me a similar question a few years ago um, in the Quaz, which <laughs> which is still the best interview um, anyone's ever done with me, um, oh, I'll show it to people and say, oh, "You want to know about me? Here, you know, read this." But um, <laughs> but uh, I, I since you asked me, I started to question that and whether I was ambitious enough um, because it's not about the fame, but you know, the more you can, I hate saying build your brand, but the more you can put yourself out there. Um, the more money you can make and, and uh, just the more, the more of a safety net you can have, uh, you know, if something happens in your, in your career. So, um, so I've really tried since then to, uh, yeah, to, to spread myself out a little more. Um, you know, I like doing stuff for uh, MLB network radio. Um, I have a lot of fun with that um, when I can. And, uh, you know, MLB network occasionally they'll have me on and to um but mostly it's just this book you know and and uh been pouring myself into this book uh, for the last three years and um kind of making it my life's work almost um to this point anyway so you know i've been trying to put a name out there but it's certainly not in the image of 
you know, ego gratification or fame or whatever, because I don't, that doesn't really do anything for me. It's nice to be, to, it's nice to be recognized always, sure. but it's not for the fame. It's, it's, it's more just, you know, for, just because I think it's smart for your career. Yeah, I agree. I also think it's interesting. Um, I think about this a lot. I had this talk with Howard Bryant a long time ago, how, so you and I, entered the business right around the same time. I might've been a year or two ahead of you. I'm not sure. But, and if you look around, if you, if you somehow found a picture of the people who are standing around, whatever, Lou Pinella with the Seattle Mariners back in whatever, 2002 or 2001 or whatever, 1998. Yeah. Very few of them are still covering sports. Like it's like people do not last super long in this business. Um, and I wonder, is that, is that do you, do you think it's because you your passion for it has kept you around? You know, have you have there been moments where you're like maybe I'll go work in PR, or maybe I'll go work for a team? You know, since you've been a reporter, um, newspapers obviously, you know, the struggles are real. Media, the struggles are real. Um, you're kind of a survivor in a business that that loses people at a pretty alarming rate. Yeah, well, I don't, I don't, I'm not sure that I um, agree. I mean, there's a lot of people, um, at least in the New York baseball writing market who've who've been at it a long time and have been at, been doing a really good job for a long time now some sometimes they've had um job changes um and a few have had to leave the industry but i think there's a lot of people um you know who who maybe i'm over overstating it but it feels like there's a lot of people who've who've been at it um you know as, as long as i have um but so i don't know i mean i i i don't think it's that Notable. I mean, this is my twenty. Was this? This has been my twenty-first year since I started um, at the Riverside Press Enterprise in '98. Um, and then you add a few more magazine. So I guess, I, yeah, I guess that's that's. Um, You've been around. I think I've been around. Yeah, I guess it's a little bit of a survivor. I mean, I'm forty-two. I feel like I've been doing it since I was fifteen. So I've been a lot more than half my life. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm fascinated by a period of your career. It's one of my favorite periods of your career because it's such an interesting time, which is you covered the, uh, you covered the Seattle Mariners for the uh, post-intelligencer with um, when you had both Griffey and A-Rod in the same clubhouse. And um, through the years, uh, especially when he was with the Yankees later in his career, you weren't very shy. You were never shy in your sort of takes on A-Rod. You, you never really seemed to enjoy that much. And I wonder what a young A-Rod and a young, not as young, but a, you know, early in his career-ish, uh, Ken Griffey, what it was like to cover them, what it was like to cover those teams, uh, and what it's like to cover two superstars sort of at the same time in their primes. Yeah, it's it's that was maybe the most interesting team I've I've ever covered. Just it was the only I I, I was beat writer for twelve years. One covering the Angels, uh, one with the Mariners, um, two with the Mets, and eight with the Yankees. And uh, that was the only losing season I ever covered, and it was. It wasn't even that bad, really. It was 79 and 83. Um, but they had high expectations, as you would think, with Griffey and A-Rod and Edgar Martinez and, and Jay Buhner and everybody um, and Lupinella. You know, they, they changed ballparks that year from the Kingdom to Safeco Field, which can't be different than those, any more different than those. Um, they had just traded Randy Johnson. That would have been another amazing personality to deal with. Um they changed GMs at the end of that year to, to Pat Gillick. I mean, so you're talking Hall of Fame type people there. I mean, Hall of Fame type, Hall of Fame level baseball people in Griffey, A-Rod, Edgar Martinez, Pinella in a way. 
when you think yeah. of his whole career, Pat Gillick, I mean, Jamie Moyer pitched for longer than just about anybody who ever lived. Um, so just a lot of, a lot of big personalities there and guys on the beat who were since the eighties and, you know, really weren't, weren't that excited about having a, a new guy on the beat. Um, so it was just a, a strange, um, and really challenging and fun, um, atmosphere the whole year. Uh, but yeah, specifically about Griffey and A-Rod, it was, it was, it was weird because, um, as the years went on, I, I appreciated Junior a whole lot more, um, and and I kind of flipped on my opinions of them um, as the years went on. Be Griffey and I had a tough start, um, but we ended up being really, uh, you know, having mutual respect and, and and being really cool with each other. What made a tough start? Why did you have a tough start with Junior? And with Alex, it was kind of the opposite. Um, I think I think he had uh, he had heard from one of the other beat writers that, uh, you know, who was very territorial. Um, he didn't really like, like I said, he didn't really like having a new guy around. And I think he put out some misinformation about him and, uh, and Griffey really trusted him. So, you know, that, um, that didn't help at the beginning. And I think Griffey also, um, at least the feeling I got back then was, was, was just, you know, he, he wanted to test you a little bit and make sure you could hang in. Um, with uh, the, you know, just the joking and, and all the stuff that goes on in the house. Um, I mean, he, you know, he's a guy, he's, uh, he wants to know, well, how do I say this? Um, you know, he, 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 he wants to know you as a person. And, and part of the way of doing that is, uh, is through sort of clubhouse humor and, that's not always the easiest thing to, to handle. Um, but once you get to new, once you get to know him and once you could sort of just put up with it um, and you could be kind of a real person with him, uh, that's what he was looking for um, because he was always been famous his whole life since he was born with, with the name. And um, I think he was always just looking for the opposite, uh, which was just, not anonymity exactly, because um, he never really wanted to just blend into the clubhouse, but he just wanted to know you and, and know what you were really after and just know you as a person. Um, and whereas A-Rod was just, I, I always thought if he was, because um, he, would, he would ask you more questions and he'd be more um, sort of eager, but eager to please in a way. But then over time, it just sort of came to, came to me to seem like it was... Uh, you know, putting on a, putting on an act. Cause I never knew what real, what personality I was going to get from him that particular on, on any given day, especially as time went on. Um, and it was just sort of dizzying to try to keep up with the many personalities that you might get. Whereas Griffey and, and even Randy, when I covered him with the Yankees, they were just what you see is what you get. And if they're in a good mood, everybody knows it. If they're in a bad mood, everybody knows it, but they're kind of the same guy every day. Um, I mean, the same, this, the, the, there's real every day, I should say. Alex, I just never knew what was real and what wasn't. Right, you um, you, you were, I actually really enjoyed. I came to really enjoy your takes on A Rod with the Yankees because I always thought they were really interesting and really pointed and really smart. You, wrote, I have one in front of you, two thousand fifteen, February seventeenth, two thousand fifteen. Um, Tents are perfect for the circus. Yeah. If Alex Rodriguez had used one for his latest apology, he might as well have shown up in grease paint, floppy shoes, and a rainbow wig. 
Rodriguez, the crown prince of baseball, would be setting himself up for laughs. Nobody does slapstick like Rodriguez, who squandered his legacy in a syringe and apologized for it under the big top at the Yankees training camp in 2009. He appealed then to our better angels and said, the only thing I ask from this group today and from the American people is to judge me from this day forward. I mean, it's really good. And, like, I just always thought you sort of – my take was you were just fed up with this guy. I mean, is that safe to say you were just kind of fed up and didn't really feel like dealing with this guy anymore and his nonsense? Yeah, and it's not like I'm, like, a steroid evangelist. I mean, if the Times let me vote, I would I would vote for, for most of the steroid guys, at least in the time period before they got um, – before they had testing. But so I'm not like I'm not some you know I'm not railing against like steroid use per se. It's more it was more the um, just how he really thought he could just play everyone for fools. I mean it was it was just so it was it was like this over the top kind of um, I don't know it was just um, clownish antics one after the other. I mean he had so many clownish antics even before the steroid stuff came out and then the first then the steroid stuff came out the first time and then you're like oh boy there's there's this you know we got to deal with um but then once he did it again it was like dude like what the hell like right. you know people are willing to forgive um i think to some extent they might they really never forget but they're willing to forgive some stuff but like I, really like again i mean it was just so blatant and so like um above ab- above the game i mean it's just like we forgave you or i forgave it's not a position to forgive but like you know we understood the first time i guess and, and we all kind of moved past it and now you're dragging everybody back and it was just so much lying and so much deceit and uh it was really just hard to be around um i mean guy who would just choose to just destroy his uh his legacy like that and just think that we would all buy it. It was, uh, it was a, but you know, he's charming and he knows, he knows baseball so well. He really does love, love baseball. You know, he disgraced it, but he really does love the game. And that's why he's good on TV. Cause he's like, you know, he can have a charming personality and he really does know his stuff. I mean, he loves the game. I wish, I wish all that stuff had never happened because I feel like we have, we would have a common sort of ground about the, the love of the game um, and all that he sees in it. But after a while, Jeff, I just reached a point where there had been so much lies and so many, so much kind of, uh, you know, phoniness that I was just like, I, I don't trust what this guy says. I don't believe what he says, anything. So it's just, he lost all credibility with me. So it was kind of not a whole lot of reason to uh, keep going to that well, because I, I never knew what was real. It's actually funny. I remember, Actually, I evoked him earlier, but I remember John Wertheim at SI. When A-Rod was new with the Rangers, he told me the story. He went to do a profile on A-Rod, and I, I don't remember who it was. Maybe Jack Curry was talking to A-Rod ahead of him. And he was kind of listening in from afar, you know, standing on the side. And A-Rod told this really emotional story, and he got emotional and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, they had the highs and the lows. And then Wertheim went up to interview him, and he told the exact same story with the exact same intonations and the exact same sort of emotion. And I, I remember, I remember at the time, this is way before steroids. Wertheim saying to me, he never came across a less sincere athlete <laughs> than Alex Rodriguez with the Texas Rangers. I know, I right? Think, yeah, it's kind of interesting. Yeah, now, well, you had you had one of the great anecdotes ever. I thought, um, and I think I've quoted it because um, I think Verducci told you that, like, 
you know, when he was doing that landmark story on steroids and, you know, Alex didn't just say, no, I've never touched him, man. I, that, that's not for me. He was like, what do they even do, Tom? Like, how, how, would, yeah. how would one even benefit from that? Like, I mean, he was just, he had to go over the top. They couldn't just say no. A lot of guys, you know, denied it. But he had to just pretend like he was so babe in the woods about it that maybe Tom Verducci could help him understand what they would do. You know, it was just like, ugh, just don't, don't pour it on like that. So I'm interested. When you write something, I mean, obviously he's retired now, but when he's playing and you write something about A-Rod, um, do you make it a point? How much of an obligation do you feel writers have if they write something negative about someone to show their face? And, and you know, when you would see A-Rod after writing something about him, would he, would he bring it up to you? Or is he pissed off at you? Or would he pretend he never read it? No, he never really said anything. I mean, I, you know, I, I don't, I'm not going to rearrange my day if I have an off day or if I'm with my family or something just to show up in the clubhouse like a tough guy. But, I mean, I'm there enough to where if anybody, um, you know, were to, were to have something to say, I'm, I'm very easy to reach. Um, but I always feel like if I'm writing something, that's why I'm not as a, well, one reason why I'm not probably as harsh as a lot of other <clears throat> columnists are in general um, is because I really just try to insert my name into the name of the subject and think about whether it's fair or not. And if I can, and if I were to be confronted on it, what I could, <clears throat> what I could say, because I never want to be accused of taking a cheap shot and I never want to be accused of being unfair. So I always want to make sure every criticism has, you know, a basis in, you know, something I could, defend it you know I, I as, as a way to defend it um you know and i felt like in, in that case there were just so much evidence um that i felt pretty justified being harsh and i think some people have told me too that um because i'm you know i'm usually not as as harsh that when i do take big swings um maybe they they land a little a little harder because uh people aren't used to it from yeah. me. I mean, it's interesting because you are not a uh, you're not a bomb thrower, even remotely. right. Yeah, you you just aren't. And and I wonder, like, have you have you ever? Do you look back at your career? Have you had moments where you thought that criticism was unfair or that take was unfair? Or have you had moments that you feel like you learned from, or or has this always been the nature? Um, I mean, I've had opinions that I would would have taken back, um, but as far as being unfair or, or throwing bombs, not really. The only one that comes to mind was the first one, and, and that was – it was just a, a throwaway line that I thought was kind of cute and, and a good image. Um, the Angels had a pitcher uh, named Jason Dixon who was having a tough year, and he just got lit up one day, and I said something like, you know, he looked like Charlie Brown on the mound when the ball comes back through the box and, you know, Charlie Brown flipped over and his clothes all go flying and everything. Um, and it was kind of a funny image. It was what I had in mind as I was watching this game. This guy just gave up all his hits. Um, but I think I was out to dinner that, that night with John Lowe from a Detroit – well, not anymore. He's retired. But uh, he was with the Detroit Free Press, just a legendary baseball writer and, and, and one of the you know nicest people I've ever met in my life. And, uh, you know, he was talking about, like, well, you know, you, you could say that and it's fine, but, I mean, is it – is it really fair to him if he's reading that to, to have himself presented that way? Um, I mean, you can, you can write that if you want and you can be that kind of writer um, or you can, you know, maybe pass on, 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 on the stuff that would be seen as making fun of someone. Cause they're out there trying, 
their hardest and they don't want to stink. And, and, and so I've really tried to, um, ever since then, remember that and um, just never take a, what I could perceive as a, as, a, as a cheap shot. I really, and I also just to be careful with the language that you use, even if you don't intend it. Um, I remember Griffey one time taking, taking um, offense to the way that uh, our columnist had, had phrased something and it was just, it was just um, a endless way to, to, to pick a fight with someone over just a, a careless choice of words. Um, you know, I just, I, I want to just take, take care, take good care of the words that I use. Just, I don't want to ever needlessly offend someone. I don't, I don't suspect that any of these guys are reading, um, but if they could, or if they did, and especially on Twitter, man, um, right. Where it's so, it would be so easy to take a shot. Um, I really just don't. I really just don't. I don't know. That's uh, that's why I don't want to do it. You know, it's interesting. You're very, very. I was trying. I was trying to think when I was reading your stuff earlier today, um, how I would describe your writing. And um, I think you're very, very precise with language. Like um, I have a story up here you wrote last month. Uh, first time, lifetime. Yankees Aaron Boone was probably born to manage, and your lead was the new manager of the Yankees has a charming little parlor trick that just might help him in the dugout, period. Show Aaron Boone almost any baseball card, and he can tell you where the photo was taken, comma, simply from the background details, period. By extension, long dash, and more important, long dash, he knows precisely what the player is doing, comma, too. I was thinking, like, you are not a waster of words. Nope. Um, every, word should, not, every word should have a reason, a purpose. You're not a big adjective guy. You're not, you know, you're not laying it on. Your descriptions are not overly thick. It's not like, you know, biting through a chunk of cheesecake. Um, where'd you learn that from? Where's that come from? Um, I think I learned it. I mean, the most influential person in my writing was Jason Stark, because I read him so much as a kid. And um, he was the biggest influence on me um, professionally and, uh, you know, and, and as a person within the business, um, just the way he treats people and, and um, the respect he gives and gets. Um, but I, I think where I learned it most was just being the editor of the, uh, of the student paper at Vanderbilt, um, <clears throat> and, and literally going through every word of the paper with a, you know, on the printouts with a red pen and, um, making sure everything fit and making sure everything sounded right. Um, and just realizing that, uh, that. There's very little I, I, that drives me crazier than, than just bad writing. I mean, I, I, or unnecessary words or just just junk muddling up, uh, you know, these the sentences. I mean, I really, it, it drives me nuts. Like I, so I just, and I, and I think that's one thing that I'm never really in the office, but one thing they tell me internally is that, um, you know, they appreciate that I hand, I hand in really clean copy. Um, and I think at least, sometimes in the past I've gotten a few more minutes on deadline because of it. Um, I just, I don't know. I just really think uh, you should be precise with, with, with your words as much as possible and, and be simple, um, but not simplistic kind of. Um, I mean, Dave Anderson was a great example of that. Like what an amazing writer, um, but in his style, like he wasn't out there to like wow you with like, crazy ways of overly clever ways of phrasing something he just you know gave you something really readable really good and well-reasoned and smart and um and then that was it so i you know i don't know but that's 
Yeah, that's where I, I that's where I learned to do that. And I always I always read everything over. You know, it's the old thing. If I had time, I would have made it shorter. You know, like just say it and say it in fewer words. I mean, I tell you, like, you know, you do a research for a book, and you find some books that are. I've bought so many books um, as I, as I research this, and some of them have good information, but the writing just is so bad. It's just like it's so hard to get through, um, get through. And it's like I, it's almost like anything, I guess. Like like bad sports radio, for example, is awful. But good sports radio, like when it's well done, is, is awful. Right. Like MLB Network Radio, like the people, like they know what they're talking about. It's really good, really good, uh, intelligent. Uh, talks like you know hopefully like what we're doing here um but boy sports radio when done badly can be awful and um and i think it's the same with sports writing like sometimes man it's just it's so easy to to get it wrong um but it's also not that it's, that's not that hard to fix either i've never right. felt that it was hard to say oh man what do i do with this like when i would work with writers this goes back a long time but like when i was sports editor of the college paper and editor i, I just i felt like there wasn't an article that you know you couldn't salvage was just um, moving some things around or taking some words out or making another call or two. I, I don't know. I just didn't feel like it was all that hard to, uh, to fix either, which is why it can be so frustrating to see like, Oh, like, why'd you have to write it that way? It's so easy not to do that. Are you a big, um, are you a big quoter? Like do you, when, when you have the option of quoting or paraphrasing, do you usually go quote or do you usually go paraphrase? I like to quote guys actually um, because I feel like, I've, I've always, um, I've always kind of <clears throat> understood my, my place in that I'm just the byline and that they, read, you know, most of the time they read about the names underneath the byline. Um, now you do have to like believe in yourself and your, the value of, of your, your voice. Um, and that's something I've learned as a columnist, but, um, but I think I want to know how, what these got, what these players, what these coaches and managers, whatnot, what they really think. They're the ones who really know it. I mean, they're the ones who live it and, and who've done it on the field. And, and uh, I never want to lose sight of, of my place in relation to them. So if they have a, a way of explaining something that I think reads well, um, I'm going to use it and I'm, and I'm going to try to quote them um at length rather than just like snip off one or two one or two sentences because i feel like when i talk like in a forum like this is good because i want every word to, to matter and i i feel like um if a guy's talking to me and i can tell that he takes it seriously um i'd rather not shortchange him i'd rather let him get his point across through me now it's tough sometimes because you have constraints of, of of word counts and stuff but and i'm not going to use their cliches if they use them but I feel right. like most of the time, if you ask good questions and if you know your subject, um, you can get good answers. And if you get good answers, it's a shame to have to uh, to not use them. Right. Yeah, that's very well said. Um, actually, was was when when I was reading this story, it's funny. The story you wrote on Aaron Boone, and this came out right before he was named Yankee manager, but everyone kind of knew he would be. Um, on the one hand, it's kind of a short story, and, and in your career, I imagine it's not going to go down as one of your, like, 20 most memorable pieces. But it's really interesting because it's really well done, and you call interesting people. Like, you called Hal McCoy, who mm -hmm. covered Aaron Booth, you know, uh, back in the day with the Dayton newspaper. And I wonder, like, so you decide you're going to write a piece about Aaron Booth. You know he's probably going to be named manager of the Yankees. You're doing a piece on him. How do you even decide who you're going to reach out to? 
Well, that one was tricky because it, it all had to be done before, like, oh, I got an extra hour to do it. Um, but I think it had to be in by, like, one or something in the afternoon on the Saturday because it was for the Sunday paper, and all those deadlines are so early. And I had a bunch Wait, and you found out about what time? Like, what time would you start on that? Or would you be assigned it or whatever? Uh, I think that story started coming down late the day before. So worked on to that into the uh, evening and then you know with the editor we talked about all right well we'll need a you know we'll need a sort of a profile column for the sunday paper um so and i know i you know i know aaron i've known him for a while and, and we have a lot of uh <clears throat> we see we see baseball in in much the same way or at least i mean he sees it as a player obviously he knows a million more times than i do but um i think in terms of recognizing things recognizing sort of uh, subtle things that other people might not, and also just having a, you know, a, a pretty good memory for it. Like we've always sort of connected over that stuff, and also the Phillies connection. Like, you know, his his dad playing for the Phillies, and uh, and me watching the Phillies a lot, but the same of the same era. So we've always had a pretty good relationship, as he does with a lot of media members. So I had a lot of stuff, um, in if, that that I could use uh, for my own, you know, for my own recollection. And, you know, I could text them, you know, here and there, just like, hey, you know, I know we're not talking, but is this, do I remember this accurately? Yes or no? You know, just yes or no or whatever. And, and you know, but not, you know, giving me information so much as just like, hey, man, I, I got to do this profile. Is this, do I remember this right? Um, so he helped out with that. But no, I mean, I just, you know, I, I figured, I know, I know Hal and I know Jim Bowden both real well. And I figured that I could, I could get them on short notice um, that morning. And um, luckily, I figured right about that. And uh, and they were both really, really good. I mean, you know, Jim, it, Jim's really good on on the, you know, MLB Network Radio and, and the TV stuff that he does. And um, you know, he knows how to weave a story and tell an anecdote. And um, and he, you know, he was there for a lot of <clears throat> Boone's career. He was there at the beginning, you know, when he drafted him. So that's always good to get someone from the beginning. And uh, and Hal, I knew the story about. Um, how much Aaron had talked to him uh, had helped him out when he was going blind. And I felt like that would be a really good example of the purposes, both of explaining how he is with the media, which is a big deal in New York and sort of showing some of his humanity in the fact that he went above and beyond to, to make a, a veteran writer um, feel comfortable in the clubhouse when he was losing his eyesight and to encourage him not to quit. So I, I you know, I thought those two could really carry the story. And that's one thing that I, I, I get sort of disappointed about sometimes is when columnists just don't don't make those calls because they don't have to. I mean, like you can just you could just write that column and just give some opinions and, and maybe a couple of anecdotes that you remember and then that's it. But I I really wanted to get at least a couple of releases in there on the record just talking about the guy. And also, you know what? I mean, that's a long answer, but you can't in a situation like that. You know, they haven't announced it yet, so you can't talk to the Yankees yet on the record about <clears throat> about the guy. Um, and so you just look for educated voices um, who don't have anything invested in it. You know, like they're not, they're not making the hire, but they know the people who make the hire and they know the guy who's being hired. You know, like certain, before they announce them, some people just can't, can't talk about it. So you just got to go to other people. Do you, um, does it emotion, like, do you feel bad for a Joe Girardi when he gets fired? You know, do you, is that part of the, is it part of it, or do you have a sort of, uh, I don't know, journalistic guard 
against certain emotions or feeling attachments toward guys or, uh, you know, affection toward guys or et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, no, I think, I think you feel, I don't know. Cause I generally, I generally, generally like people like almost everyone. Um, I can find something I'd like about them um, and just focus on that. So, yeah, I mean like, you know, when, when something unfortunate happens to uh, <clears throat> any of these guys, I, I, I do feel something, um, for them personally. I mean, they, they've, you know, they're at the highest level of the sport and, you know, the far greater percentage of people don't make it, um, try to make it and don't. So they are, you know, the lucky ones and the successful ones, but even within that, like, you know, we all have ups and downs and, and, and deal with, uh, disappointments and, and, and you feel, I feel bad for them in that case. Yeah. I mean, I felt bad for Joe, Joe, you know, Joe was never going to be Joe Torrey in terms of like, giving you real rich quotes and, and flavorful anecdotes that'll just fill up your story. But Girardi never once questioned um, the time he needed to spend with us um, and the obligation of it. Never, never begged out of it. Um, You know, and I think while he was never like going to be overly helpful to you, like he, he, I think he's a genuinely good man who always wanted you to succeed in life. I mean, I, I never felt like he, he was a, he was a bad guy. So, um, yeah, no, I, I, I felt, I felt, I felt, uh, bad for him. I know I talk about it. I probably, sure. probably should have reached out and sent him a, <laughs> sent him a text, but I didn't, honestly though, I've never had texted with Girardi. So, um, cause I always deal with him like twice a day, you know, at right. the ballpark, but when, you know, when there's a GM or something or a scout or whatever, and you hear that they lose their job, um, Often I will shoot them a text because they, you know what, man, because they've been helpful to me. And I always feel like these guys don't always, they really don't have to be helpful to you. Like, I always feel like, you know, they're, they're, they're doing me a favor um, by taking time out of their day to help me do my job. So, you know, if they lose theirs um, and and there's somebody who I've texted with and, and, and called in the past, I'll, uh, you know, I'll just shoot them a note just to say, hey, man, I'm so, you know, sorry to hear that. Good luck you know, good luck with everything. Cause uh, these guys do help us out. And, and I want to show gratitude. I also think we live in particularly mean times. Like I, I was just thinking when you were talking about that a couple of years ago, I don't know if it was two or three seasons ago when uh, the Packers had a backup tight end, who had a really bad fumble and a kickoff and moments later on Twitter, you know, there's just like nonstop venom toward this guy. And, and even today, you know, Marvin Lewis is extended by the Cincinnati Bengals. And you look on Twitter and it's just, bashing this guy left and right. Jack Del Rio was fired by the Raiders. People are celebrating. And I always think, like, behind this all, there's a guy who just lost his job. And whether he's making a million dollars or ten bucks an hour, he still has to go home and tell his family that he lost his job. And, you know, tens, if not hundreds, if not millions of people know that you lost your job and share um, in, in, to some degree, in celebrating your execution. And I just think we have become callous to that, and it always bothers me, you know? Yeah. Yeah, that's that's true. There's a real person behind all that stuff, and um, I don't know. I mean, it's just the, the, world, the world's cruel enough, man. I, I really don't want to uh, take shots at people, um, you know. At, in the, I just, I don't know. I just generally don't like taking shots at people because I don't, I don't like the process of defending it, and I don't like um, just putting more negativity out there if I don't have to. And, uh, and I always just give people the benefit of the doubt. I'm, you know, I'm probably naive in that sense, but I just, I always assume that everybody out there is, uh, is trying their best and, and, uh, is worthy of, you know, worthy of respect. 
Yep, I uh, I agree. Uh, final question for you here. I uh, have another story in front of me. Um, December twentieth, two thousand seventeen. Uh, another Florida star departs as the Rays trade uh, trade Evan Longoria. Um, and I wonder when you are uh, when you're writing about a guy getting traded uh, or a deal, a transaction of some sort. Are you? Are you? Uh, this sounds almost in almost it. It's an it's a not a poetic way of putting it. Are you looking for the reason behind the deal? What I mean is, when the Yankees acquired Giancarlo Santa, uh, Stanton, are you are you trying to figure out what the Marlins are thinking? How much of it is digging behind the trade to figure out what made up the trade, and how much is the surface reporting of the trade and what it means to the teams? Um, well, I think if I'm doing my job right, I should be able to explain to the readers uh, why something happened. So. Um, you know, yeah, that, that requires digging that requires, uh, knowledge of the industry and the motivations of every team. And, um, you know, cause a lot of times people just don't, they don't pay close enough attention. It's not their job. I mean, you know, like, like me, I, I like the NFL or the NBA, but I don't pay close enough attention to understand the motivation for every deal, um, that happens that, that might catch my attention. So, you know, I feel like a lot of times you're writing for, for those casual fans as well. Um, you can't dumb it down too much, but you need to be able to explain and, and, and you know, easily to understand language um, why some deal went down. And I feel like that's my strength because I don't, you know, we don't, um, people who, you know, my, my bosses don't prioritize me finding out um, the six teams that are interested in Lance Lynn right now. You know what I mean? It's not like, that's not how I spend my time and, and energy. Um, but when a Lance Lynn signs, I need to be able to understand why and, you know, how that impacts everything. Um, so I feel like that's my, that's what I can do best in those situations. And then like that day when a trade was made, happened pretty early in the day and it was official pretty early in the day. So you could start, um, you know, find out more about it. And then they have some people on conference calls and whatnot, and they just put it together. Um, but I also look for, in that day, I look, I, you know, I try to look for something beyond just like what that deal means. And, and one of the first things I thought of was, man, you know, like that's two giant stars traded from, from the two Florida teams. And these two teams can never quite find their footing in MLB. You know, they both came in in the nineties. They both really struggled to draw. They have had some success. It hasn't been total uh, failure. But they, you know, they just can't quite have that sustainable model. Um, something's always a little bit wrong there. So, you know, I, I try to just twin them up. Right. As soon as that trade happened, the first thing I thought was, this guy's going from the worst stadium in baseball, playing <laughs> in some giant tunic. I really did. I, I thought, that's probably what I'd write about, going from, like, playing in the Tropicana, in Tropicana Field, which is the worst stadium anywhere, to beautiful, lovely San Francisco. That's funny. Yeah. You know, it's like, what a great change for that guy. Yeah. Well, that, you know, that's, that's, uh, you know, that's a, the, something I, I'd like to do too. And, and that, you know, you find, if you know enough about um, baseball, if you're deep into enough, if you're deep into it enough and you, you love it enough or any subject, you can find connections like that, um, that really help you out. I mean, if I didn't have, if I weren't able to sort of intuitively make uh, connections between various players or events or teams or whatever, um, the job would be a lot harder. And I feel like I have a little bit of an edge sometimes because I just, I don't know, I, I, 
I remember a lot of stuff about baseball. I don't know why. And, and I just, you know, I think about it way too much probably. Um, but the, what that does is sometimes when something happens, I, I can pretty quickly kind of think of, think of something else it relates to, and then maybe talk to a person like that. Like, like example, like a couple of years ago, the giants were down three to one to St. Louis in the LCS and they would need a row um, for the second series in a row to advance because they had just done mm-hmm. it against the Reds. And in that clubhouse, I'm thinking like, boy, you know, the only team I can remember that's ever, you know, won three in a row, you know, had three must-win games back-to-back series and done it was the 85 Royals because um, they fell down three to one in both series in the LCS and the World Series. I'm like, man, who can I get on the 85 Royals right now? And it's late. And I'm like, oh, my God, there's Steve Balboni standing in the hallway because he's like a, he was a scout for the Giants or whatever. And so right. I, I w- could go up and talk to Steve Balboni um, about that experience. And so, you know, if I weren't able to, like, recall that stuff, like, right away, um, you know, I just it would make it would make life a lot harder. Man, it's so funny. We speak the same language. <laughs> I'm always thinking I'm always thinking about right. Steve Balboni. Right. right. I, I assure you. Well, I can tell you, first of all, I wore number 45 with the Yankees. He and Don Matting were, were five, you know, were the two first basemen of the future for the Yankees. They traded into Kansas City. It was really a debate at first whether the Yankees made the right move trading Balboni and keeping Mattingly. I just, um, yeah, I'm, I'm sort of like you. I'm a geek. <laughs> oh yeah, uh, I'm very proud of that. I mean, I'm, I'm me too. Paul Nerd, me man. too. Yeah, me too. Um, well, listen, Tyler, I, uh, I, I truly thank you for doing this, and I am a, uh, I'm a huge admirer of your work, and uh, you know happy to see you sort of thriving and surviving in the business. So uh, good luck in, in, in book world. It's a nice place to be. <laughs> yeah. Thanks, man. No, you're, you're a great, uh, great example of that. And um, I really do love it. I mean, I love this, uh, this process. It, it, it can be daunting, but thankfully I got a lot of time to do it and I just can't wait till the thing comes out. Um, then in your, you know, you've had that experience, uh, what, 10 times or so of, of having your own book come out. Yeah, a couple. Uh, Eight. Yeah. Yeah. So uh anyway, good luck to you with that US album, man. Can't wait to uh, thank you. Yeah. All right, thanks, Tyler. All right, man. Take care. See I want to thank today's guest, Tyler Kepner, for joining me on Two Writers Sling and Yang. You can follow Tyler on Twitter at Tyler Kepner and read his stuff in the New York Times. One can listen to Two Writers Sling and Yang on both iTunes and Anchor.fm. Reviews are always appreciated. Music by MC White Owl. Thanks again for joining me. And remember, keep writing.